You're listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. Today's message from Pastor Colt Hudson is part of our current sermon series through the Gospel of John. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you. Thanks for listening. Let's go ahead and be turning in our Bibles this morning to John 3, verses 22 through 36. Again, that is John 3, verses 22 through 36. And uh, so glad to be continuing our series through the Gospel of John today and uh, looking at a sermon titled, He Must Increase and I Must Decrease. Uh, read a story uh, in preparation for this sermon uh, about a governor of Massachusetts who was in the middle of a fundraiser. And the governor is trying to win re-election, and so he's making all these appearances. And in the process of this grueling re-election race, he uh, has to make an appearance at a barbecue. And all day he's been going from event to event, and so uh, he didn't eat any breakfast and he didn't eat any lunch. And so now he's at this late afternoon barbecue, and the man is hungry. He goes through the line just like anybody else, and... Uh, they put a piece of chicken on his plate, and it happens to be a little bit smaller than the one that everyone else is getting. And so he says, can I please have a second piece of chicken? The lady serving says, "Uh, no, sir, we are only allowed to give one piece of chicken to every person who comes through. And he says, I just need one more. I'm really hungry. And she said, sir, I cannot do it. It is against the rules. And he said, finally, he said, do you know who I am? I am the governor of Massachusetts. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of whether or not you get another piece of chicken. (laughs) Sometimes we need to remember our place and remember who we are specifically as Christians. And so I was reading an old commentary on today's passage. I ran across a statement that says, when we're growing physically, we increase in size, whereas when we grow spiritually, we decrease. And uh, I believe that to be a very profound statement about what it means to grow as a believer and specifically what it means to be a Christian. We're called to exhibit Christ and to show him and to shine as lights to the nations. And if we're going to do that, it will only be because Christ is shining through us. And that means that he needs to be increasing in us with our old sinful nature decreasing. So as we look at this passage today, may we keep these things in mind. Again, John 3, verses 22 through 36. I'll be reading from the ESV. You follow along in your translation. Verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. 
He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father God, we come before you today, and Lord, we come asking for grace. Father, your word tells us that we can boldly come before your throne of grace and ask for what it is that we need and for the assistance that we require. Father, we come before you today asking for you to do a mighty work in us today. Father, we ask that your will would be done. We ask that you would be pleased. But Lord, we simply ask that you would move now amongst us. That Father, you would reveal your will to us. Lord, you would move me out of the way and use me as a mouthpiece to proclaim your message to your people. But, Lord, we pray that that message would be powerful today. Father, we pray that we would be convicted, that we would be encouraged, that we would be challenged, that we would be equipped. Lord, in all things, we would be ready and faithful and fruitful. Father, we seek to glorify you. Lord, we seek to reach this community that they may do the same. Father, help us again to both do that today and to be equipped to do that. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, at this point in our series through the Gospel of John, if you've been with us for some time, you will recognize that there is uh, a lot of context that plays into what's happening today. Uh, Back when we started this series, we remember that really the the Gospel of John opens with a lot of conversation surrounding John the Baptist. And specifically, uh, at this point, what we see is that John the Baptist and Jesus have already had an interaction. This is building upon that past uh, account of that interaction that they've had. And we spent a lot of time looking at that interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist, and we recognize it spanned a couple days. And so what happens back in that conversation, predominantly, the major theme is that John the Baptist tells people that Jesus Christ is is the Son of God, and he was the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That was the emphasis behind what John the Baptist was doing. He was pointing people to Christ. And so we spent some time in uh, in that discourse looking at what happened, and then we moved on into Jesus's ministry. Jesus began by uh, turning water into wine. Right? He's called his disciples, he goes to this wedding, he turns water into wine, we saw a miracle of conversion. Then Jesus cleanses the temple, and then for the last few weeks we've been looking at a conversation with Nicodemus where Jesus is teaching about what it means to be born again, and he's teaching about the Father's love. And so we've been in that situation for a while, and so this picks up today by saying after this, so after this conversation with Nicodemus, We now see that the gospel tells us Jesus went over into Judea and he remained there for some time baptizing. Now this is interesting for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they focus on what Jesus did in Galilee, whereas John's gospel here is focusing on the ministry in Judea. And the Bible is telling us that in this time Jesus is, he's kind of settling in, he's doing ministry, and he is baptizing. Jesus is seemingly continuing some of the same work as John the Baptist. Again, this baptism of repentance, calling people to repent and then baptizing them for the repentance of their sins. 
John the Baptist, however, has kind of continued right on from where we left him. Right? We know what's happened with Jesus since that interaction, but what's happened with John the Baptist? Well, we can see here that he has continued his same ministry. He is still John the Baptist, so he is baptizing. And specifically now, he's at a location known as Enon because there was a lot of water there and because people were coming to get baptized. Now, let's just think about this for a moment. This sounds like a good place to be, right? Jesus is, is ministering throughout Judea, and John the Baptist has a place with plenty of water, and people were coming to be baptized. In the Greek language, it actually gives us the suggestion that people were coming and coming and coming to be baptized, is the way that it's described. There's a lot going on. Things are happening. Their ministries are going well. But then we see that in the midst of when things are, are, are again, going very well, a discussion arose among John's people and a Jew over purification. Now, we don't know the extent of this argument. It says discussion, uh, but we know pretty clearly from looking at this text uh, what this means, because obviously the follower of John, he gets pretty upset about it. They're having a discussion about purification, and, and apparently it gets to the point where John's disciple, his follower, has to come to him and have a conversation, and, and basically what happens is that this disciple comes to John the Baptist, and he says, this Jesus guy you're talking about, he's baptizing, and everyone is going to him. Now, let's think about this, right? First of all, this is a mass exaggeration, because John the Baptist has had to move to a location where there's more water, because all the people who are coming and coming and coming to get baptized. But the disciples' concern here is that Jesus is baptizing and everyone is going to Jesus and what's going to happen to them, right? That seems to be the logical way that this plays out. Now, all of a sudden, all these people who used to be coming to John the Baptist, they used to have the market cornered. Now, they are all going to Jesus. Now, we look at this. We say that's a pretty bad attitude have right it's a bad outlook the man is concerned that people are leaving them and going to jesus but john the baptist's response to his followers is a thing of beauty because john the baptist was not worried one bit about himself and his reputation and his success he was doing and had done what god had called him to do and his response includes this famous verse he must increase but i must decrease this is the life of a Jesus follower. We are to focus on Christ's increase and our decrease. This means that our goal and our job is to make much of Christ and little of ourselves. This means we seek his glory over our own. We want him to be known above all and we want people to know him and his gospel to spread all the while our glory and influence is diminished. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't try to better ourselves or be successful or, or, or be effective or be knowledgeable or any of those things. It simply means that we're not here to see people be like us or to follow us, but to be like and follow Christ. The success is pointing people to Christ. John the Baptist's follower thought that success was everyone coming to them. Everyone being there and following them Whereas John the Baptist was showing him that really the success of their ministry was in pointing people to Christ. And ultimately, John the Baptist will say, hey, I'm happy because it worked. 
They're going to him. But what we'll see today is that in fact John's statement is a statement that sums up our sanctification as well. When we become a believer, we're to be sanctified. We're to grow in his grace and become more like Christ. The goal is that Christ increases in our life and that our sinfulness in the old self decreases. So in every aspect of the Christian life, Christ is to be the center of attention and focus, and we are simply to exist to point to him and grow in him. So how do we get the right mindset on this? How do we change ourselves from the mindset of the popular culture which says it's all about me? How often do we hear the world tell us that it's all about us? It's about having it our way. That it's about following our heart and our desire and our thought. Culture tells us the best thing that we can do is be famous. The best thing we can do is is become infinitely wealthy. The best thing that we can do and the highest goal of the modern generation is to become an influencer. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the language of influencers, it means that people's whole life and success is based around people following them on social media and then that person telling all their followers what to do. That's the number one aspiration of the current generation according to polls, is to be an influencer. How do we go from this world where I want everyone to follow me and be exactly like me and to me be successful based on how many people are listening to what I say to a world in which we must decrease and Christ increase. That we point others to him. See, we have to prioritize thinking in terms of the Bible and Christ's increase in our life. Make no mistake about it. If we're following the Bible, we are called to have mindset shifts, to change how we see things. The Bible tells us to be renewed by the transforming of our mind. So today, as we look in this word, my my goal is to show you four mindset shifts that we can make by God's grace that will help us to reframe our life around our decrease and his increase. We need to shift our mind. I want to show you four ways that we do that. The first one is this, that we recognize that God is the source of everything good. Now this, again, not a revolutionary statement. This is not something you've never heard me say before, but we need to recognize that God is the source of everything good. And and I want to frame it for you in a couple of different ways. I want to ask you a question, first of all, which is what is the American dream? At the most basic, it means that if we work hard enough and we do our best, that anything is possible. Which is an amazing thing. Where's the onus on that? Where's the emphasis It's on us working hard, doing the best we can, and that will determine our success. It's awesome to think that we are the master of our own destiny. It's awesome to think that we are in charge. That's not the testimony of the Bible. John the Baptist's immediate response is what? A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. We are often tempted to pat ourselves on the back, but the Bible tells us that every good thing comes from above. We can't receive anything unless heaven gives it. This is not a qualified statement. It means everything, big or small. Most of us, we have a problem in in one way or the other, which is is to say that when things are, are really good, like when there's something that really big happens, 
And it's so good, we'll give God the glory and we'll say, man, everything is, is so good. God did this, it's so big because most of the time we recognize there's no way we could have done it. But it's the small things as well. When something big happens in our life, it's not a testament to how great or how good we are, but how good God is. When the big things happen, we give the credit, the praise, and the glory to God. The same is true in the small successes as well. Even the smallest blessings are a testimony to God's grace and his glory. So again, when the small things happen, we give all the credit, the praise, and the glory to him. Uh, I love watching and listening to stories of businesses growing. Um, like when we go on road trips, um, we will wear it out, uh, just going on all these times. We'll put on podcasts, I'll have cues of them set up, and, and what happens is it'll be something, for instance, explaining how Chick-fil-A went from Truett Cathy selling ice and Cokes on a street corner to the chicken empire it is today. Uh, or I'll listen to stories of how car companies grew from one person, or how Harley Davidson went from two guys to a motorcycle empire. Right? The whole idea is that these stories to me are so fascinating because we see these stories of great success. And in America, we love these stories because we have a tendency to idolize these people because we say these are like self-made guys. But the fact of the matter is that there is no self-made man. And there is especially no self-made Christian. When our intelligence benefits us or our physical abilities gift us, this is a matter of God's common grace in giving us intelligence or physical gifting. So even the natural things like those are gifts from God. But especially when it comes to our salvation, we must recognize that we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot save ourselves. We don't go from sinners who are hopelessly lost and wicked with hearts of stone to saints who are saved and new creation with new hearts on our own. It's a gift of God by his grace. And, and in fact, Ephesians 2 talks about this when it says that it's, it's by grace through faith, not by our own doing. It's not from works. Why? so that no one may boast. The, the idea here is, again, in, in even the way that everything is set up, in that we do not boast in ourselves or what we're capable of, but we boast in Christ. We can't boast because it's a gift from God. We're not smarter or wiser than the lost. We cannot say that we're saved because we're so great, but that we are saved by God's grace so that he receives all the glory and we can't boast in ourselves. John the Baptist, he understood these things. He knew that the ministry he had, the, the time that he had been given in which he was able to influence those people was only given to him in the first place by God. Every moment he had was a gift of God. So if Christ is truly God and truly man wanted to do something, he had that authority because John would have never been there in the first place were it not for God's grace. Guys, there is no self-made Christian a self-made man can only make himself more a sinner. But a man saved by God's grace is saved and changed completely. If Christ is to increase in our life and we are to decrease, we must realize alongside John the Baptist that Christ gets all the glory because he is the reason that we have anything good or do anything good. So we live in that knowledge. I remember when I, I was in my first class at... Uh, Bible college my freshman year and one of the things that we were um, told to do for class was to memorize certain scripture verses and one of them that we were required to memorize was John 15 uh, 4 through 5 
And uh, to this day, I still hold on to it because, I, I mean, I was, I was terrified. I was not going to know this passage. And I thought, they're surely going to fail me out of Bible college if I can't remember one Bible verse. But it illustrates this point so well. It says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In, in light of recognizing that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. That everything is a gift, every good thing is a gift from above. We recognize that apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but with Christ, all things are possible, so we give him the glory. I just want to tell you, if you're busy giving Christ the glory in everything, we will not have room or time to glorify ourselves. If we focus on being thankful to God for the great blessings that he has given us and we spend time thanking him and praising him and glorifying him for every good thing he has done in our life, we will not have time to pat ourselves on the back. And by shifting our mind in this way, he will increase and we will decrease. Secondly, we need to rejoice in our role. We see this in verses 28 through 32. Again, not a a radically new statement, but I want to frame it. If Christ is to increase and we are to decrease, we have to rejoice in the decreasing. I I mean, just think about how how small of a vocabulary we have to talk about uh, decreasing in, in popularity or influence or any of those things that's positive. Right? Usually if someone is decreasing, it means something bad happened. Right? Why, why, why would we ever take a lesser position? The only way we know how to talk about it is in terms of a fall from grace. Usually, right? Oh, if someone's decreasing, it's because something bad happened. When in reality, what we see is that according to Scripture, if we are decreasing in relation to Christ, it is a great thing. We must rejoice in that decreasing. We must rejoice in our role. John the Baptist, just like the last time we looked at him, he recognized that Jesus was God and John the Baptist was just a man who pointed to Christ. He tells his people, look, y'all heard me say this. Right? He says you yourselves, but, but y'all are witnesses. <laughs> you heard it with your own two ears. I told you. He is Christ. He is the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Son of God. I am not him. And then he uses an awesome analogy. We often speak of the church as the bride of Christ, and we know this to be true. In this analogy, Christ is the groom. He loves and leads and cares for the church. And John the Baptist here says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The one who has the church is the groom. He says, the groom's friend just stands by and rejoices at the groom's voice and that the groom loves the bride and has the bride and therefore my joy is complete. What is John the Baptist saying? He was telling his followers that Christ has the bride. Therefore, Christ is the groom. John the Baptist was saying, I am a groomsman. We need to take a best man approach. 
John the Baptist says, I rejoice when the groom has the bride. I rejoice when the bride, the church, when the saved run to Christ and hear his voice. I am not the groom, so I rejoice that they go to Christ. And by that, we recognize that we too are to rejoice when people go to Christ. It's not about us. Listen, weddings are an interesting part in the life of a minister. Um, they say that when you become a pastor, that your responsibility is to marry them and bury them. Uh, and that's any of your friends or your family or just a friend of a friend or, or so on and so forth. And so you, you, you get into a lot of these things, and what happens is weddings are beautiful and they can be amazing, but there is a lot of pressure on the pastor in a wedding. Because I'm doing the bulk of the talking, and I'm keeping everyone on track, and if I say something dumb or do something dumb or look dumb, the bride will get me. Like everyone at some point. Yeah, it's the truth. Like everyone, at some point, my friends uh, roped me into weddings where I was a groomsman. And uh, from all my wedding experience, I have learned a vital lesson. In a wedding... Unless we are the bride or the groom, if we are the center of attention, something has gone horribly wrong. Like, other than the bride or the groom, if people remember that I was there, or that I did something, or that I said something in particular, it's probably bad. And in this analogy, John the Baptist is making that clear to us, that we are not the center of attention. If we are, things have gone horribly wrong wrong Christ is the center of attention and his bride the church is a focal point but we are not the best man is there to stand alongside the groom and to witness and to rejoice when the groom takes his bride the same is true of us and of Christ we're to put all the attention on him It's not about us, it's about him saving sinners by his grace. And when we recognize that, we rejoice in it. Because we see that we cannot save people. I cannot save this community, you cannot save this community. So it does no one any good if they come to us. But Christ is mighty to save, so we point people to him and we rejoice when they go to him. I saw one of these quotes before that said, True humility and worship is praying for God to move mightily and save people and bring revival and rejoicing when it happens at the church across town. We, we must rejoice when Christ is the center of attention. Not seek to put ourselves in that place of attention. It is all about him. And John the Baptist, he makes that clear by comparing our roles. So he, he's the center of attention. You're... you're you're there to witness and rejoice. And then here he, he takes it kind of a step further in, in verses 31 and even a little bit here in 32 as well. But the, the comparison here is that we are from earth and belong to the earth and speak in an earthly way, whereas he is from above and therefore is above all things. And he tells what he has seen and what he has heard. He utters the words of God, John the Baptist will say. The one of earth can only speak to earthly things. We are limited in knowledge and ability. 
But Christ from heaven is above all. He is sovereign. He's in charge. He is high and lifted up. He's on his throne. And we love to claim that, but do we live it? How often do we rejoice in the fact that Christ is in charge and we aren't? We are control freaks. If you don't believe it, get in a car with somebody else. We, we feel like we have to be in charge. And if we assert that in our life and we're not submitted to Christ, we are seeking to increase and we are asking Christ to decrease, which is sinful. We submit to him and we let our preferences and desires and everything else die for the sake of doing and submitting to what he wills. We don't do things for God to be the center of attention. So many times uh, we recognize, and when I say ministry here, I'm not not talking about just the official pastoral ministry of the church. I'm talking about all of us. We all have a ministry in some way. We don't do the things we do. We don't volunteer in a church. We don't do our ministry for the sake of ourselves. It's, it's not about us. When we don't care who gets the credit or if it helps us or makes us look good and we instead focus on how to glorify God and lead others to do the same in our ministry, we will see fruit. And that's true whether we are preaching, teaching Sunday school, working in the nursery, building beds, or praying. It's about him and glorifying him. But notice that John the Baptist said that we were to rejoice in that as well. His joy was complete it had, because he had seen it in his life where he was now decreasing. He is on the way out. And he didn't know it, but soon he'd be going to prison and, and death. But he was on the way out. And because of that, he rejoiced because Christ was glorified. Don't be a begrudging follower. Jesus said, my yoke is light. As it's not a burden to submit to Christ, it is a joy. Thus, we should rejoice. Don't fuss about it. Rejoice in it. And when we rejoice in our role as those submitted to and serving Christ so that he receives the glory and he increases and we decrease, then we too will be able to say that our joy is complete. John the Baptist's joy was that Christ was increasing and he was decreasing. May that be ours as well. Our ministry is never about us. It's always about him. Thirdly, we need to receive the testimony of the gospel. We need to receive the testimony of the gospel. Verse 33 says, whoever receives his testimony, or sorry, verse 32, apologize. It says, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. He'll also say that that he whom God has sent utters the words of God. He gives the spirit without measure. And that ultimately, because of the Father's love for the Son, he's put all things under his authority. John the Baptist says that Christ bears testimony, and yet the people do not listen. How interesting is that? Yet no one receives his testimony. We know that in our lost and and depraved state, we do not. That's the darkness of it. But then John the Baptist says here that whoever, again, receives that testimony sets a seal of the fact that God is true. When we receive the testimony of the gospel, we are necessarily saying some things that are true. right? Like if we believe it, if we 
claim to believe the gospel, then, then we have to believe some things. Namely, when we receive the testimony of the gospel and believe by God's grace, we're saying that God is true, right? That this stuff is real. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe in it. But in this place, he says that we are setting our seal to it. What does that mean? Well, we we go back into that ancient world. uh, Setting a seal was kind of like a signature. Again, we are endorsing it. We're saying that this is truth. This is certifiable truth. Believe that God is true. We're also saying that the one who God sent utters the words of God. We're saying that we believe that the things that Jesus said are are pure truth. We're saying that the scripture, the entirety of God's word, the 66 books of the Bible are his words. That we believe the Bible. If anything in there is not true, then the whole thing falls apart and there's no reason to believe it in the first place. You either believe all of it or none of it. There is no in-between. He says, we believe that he gives the spirit without measure. And if we're a believer who's here today, then we know already, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, we know the role the spirit has in, in, in the new birth and being born again. We know that the spirit works in us in sanctification and changes us. We, so we, again, must necessarily believe that the spirit moves and works in us. And finally, we have to recognize that everything falls under the authority of Christ. All things have been given into his hand. Colossians tells us that in all things he may have preeminence, meaning he is above all, as John has already said. Believing the gospel is the most humbling thing we can do. Because the verb here is one of reception. John the Baptist says no one receives his testimony. Right? Again, this is true of ourselves. We would never receive this testimony in and of ourselves. Our pride won't allow it. But by God's grace, we are saved. By his grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we're born again. Remember, John the Baptist just said we cannot receive even one thing unless it is given us by heaven. So we recognize that this calling to receive the gospel is only possible by God's gift of grace. And again, at the end, they're saying that Christ has all the authority and all things are in his hand. That means that we are, again, believing that we are his servants and we are submitted. Because when we believe, it's a sign that God is true because God said it would happen and so it has. When we grow by the Spirit, we recognize that our growth is, again, not because we're so great and that we just listen to God so well, but it's because God is working in us to keep us and to grow us. He increases in our life. The Spirit increases in our life and our sinful flesh decreases. The famous song, Lord, I Need You, has a line that says this. It says, holiness is Christ in me. We're called to be holy, for God is holy. Multiple places in Scripture where it gives us this command. The only way that we are holy is when Christ is in us, when the Holy Spirit dwells within us, when he's making us holy. So what we recognize is that as he increases in us, so too does our holiness. And as our past and the old man in us decreases, so too does our sinfulness. When we believe the gospel and grow by the Holy Spirit, people, and and us specifically, we will be in awe of God's ability to change us and make us new people. Here's the cool thing about the gospel, too, that's so amazing to me. I can look at your life, and, and I can listen to you tell the story of how you once were so sinful, and now you're different, right? And, and sometimes even I can look at it and say, man, this is a marked change. 
Like, I've seen people who were everything from, from gang leaders and drug addicts and you name it get saved. And we can look at it and we say, man, there's a big difference. But you know what's so amazing about when we believe the gospel and when we reflect on the gospel in our own life is that only us, like we're the person who knows our depravity the best. We know just how sinful we were before. More than I can see from the outside, more than anyone can see, more than anyone else knows. And yet we see where God has changed us. That, that awes us. It humbles us. And when we believe that gospel, we're saying we couldn't do it ourselves, so by receiving the gospel truly, we decrease and he increases. And this is why believers need to hear the gospel a lot, over and over. It's why we preach it to ourselves. Because if we have been a Christian for some time, it gets easy for us to think that this is just who we are and who we've always been, and we're here because of ourselves. But don't lose sight of the awe and the majesty and the mystery that Christ saved you. You're not here because you're good, we're here because he is good. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul was saying, I have changed because of him, not me. Finally, number four today, we need to retell the story. And this is verse 36. Whoever believes, in the son of, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is a, an, an echo of what we've seen over the last few weeks in John 3.15 and John 3.16. Whoever believes in Christ has eternal life. Whoever does not, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, let, we just read that. Immediately, something might not jump out to us. But note, the wrath of God is not placed on someone at the end, but he says the wrath of God remains on them. What does that mean for us? It means that it has always been there. Outside of Christ, we are under the wrath of God, currently. Right? Just as in John 3.16, we are currently perishing. We need to, again, reframe how we think about things. That, again, it's about him increasing. We must put down and put aside. Here's the thing. We must retell the gospel story that we've received because this is what Paul did, right? He says, what I have received, I pass on to you. He is telling not something of his own creation, but the gospel. We share the story, the truth that we're all sinners under the wrath of God, destined to bear it for all eternity. But Jesus Christ, the perfect, eternal, only Son of God, came and lived a sinless life and died on the cross to take that wrath and pay the price we deserve that we may be saved by his grace by believing in him. Just as he rose on the third day, so shall we be resurrected to eternity with him. And when we believe in him and repent of our sin, we're saved and no longer under the wrath of God, but we're covered by the blood of Jesus and we have grace. But here's where the mind shift comes in. A recognition of that very statement means that every lost person in our community and our family are under the wrath of God. We have to shift our minds from thinking like, oh, they're, 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 I mean, like, they're good people. Right? Have you heard that? Like, oh, they're, they're good people. Like their heart is in the right place. They have good intentions. We need to get real about where lost people are. Because when we do that, we will have a, a firmer priority in our life to speak less of ourselves and to increase in sharing the gospel that he might increase in their life. 
Our college hymn when we were uh, at the Baptist College of Florida was, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. It says, Tell me the story of Jesus, write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. Tell how the angels in chorus sang as they welcomed his birth, glory to God in the highest, peace and good tidings to earth. Fasting alone in the desert, tell of the days that are past, how for our sins he was tempted, yet was triumphant at last. Tell of the years of his labor, tell of the sorrow he bore, how he was despised and afflicted, homeless, rejected, and poor. Tell of the cross where they nailed him, writhing in anguish and pain. Tell of the grave where they laid him, Tell how he liveth again. Love in that story so tender, clearer than ever I see. Stay, let me weep while you whisper. Love paid the ransom for me. We are to tell this story because the gospel is the only thing that has the power to change people. If we continue to insist that we increase at the expense of Christ, then our community will continue to remain under the wrath of God. But if we decrease by his grace and we increase by focusing on him and sharing the gospel and giving him all of the glory, then we will see fruit. Christ increases most when sinners die to self and live to and for him. There are tons of people out here under his wrath. In this community, in in our families, maybe even here. May we share the story of Jesus, the gospel that they may believe, that the bride may come to the bridegroom, that we can stand beside and rejoice. If you are here today and have never trusted in Christ, we pray that you would do so. Throw yourself on his mercy and grace and trust in him. If you're a believer here today, we are to decrease in ourselves that Christ may increase in us, in our church, in our community. May we rejoice that Christ is king and we his people. Father, we come before you today and Lord, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we recognize that none of this would be possible were it not for your grace, were it not for your goodness and your mercy. Father, we pray that today you would increase in our church and that, Lord, our human sinful passions would decrease. And, Lord, we pray that if there is a lost person here today, that, Father, you would increase in their life by them dying to self and following you. Lord, move in our midst, work in us, mold us and shape us. Lord, show us your will now and help us to be faithful to follow it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bellevue Baptist Gadsden Podcast. We would love for you to join us on campus for worship Sunday mornings at 1045. We look forward to seeing you. Have a great week.